1: and information, Mark. That's what we're all about. I'm starting off trying to be mellow today, Mark. Instead of starting off on a on a big um, a big high, and we're going to work up to a, a cres- cres- crescendo um, as we get into our new stories. So it is the weekend in Friday, August the twenty third, and we're getting very close, very very close to episode one hundred. So send an email to us. Vet- gurus at gmail.com, and you will be automatically entered into the random draw for fantastic prizes and Brendan, we've already I, I, got a- I know I've
0: been a little bit surprised at the quality of the prizes you've already amassed it's um it's a uh, uh, an outstanding little hamper and um and uh, and and look already <sighs> We've got a huge number of uh, emails. Um,
1: uh, is- unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable prizes, Mark. Uh-huh. And I, gee, I wish I wish I could enter. That I wasn't um, disqualified from being the host here because um, I don't want to pay the postage to send all this stuff out, Mark. Um, it's going to be fantastic. So. Yeah, log in um, or log into to vetgurus.com and you can send us an email via there or just send an email to vetgurus at gmail.com and all you need to do is say hi. Um, if you're feeling up to it, say not just hi, say hello and say welcome. Um, I, this is my practice, what I do, um, where I live and um, hi, Brendan and Mark and if you do that, I tell you what, Mark. I'm going to give them one extra entry if they actually tell them tell a um, um a little bit about themselves. So um, I'm changing the rules as we go, but I think it's worthwhile. Rather than just getting all these people who just send a, a blank email um to enter the competition, what do you think? I, I'm I'm perfectly happy with your
0: slight adjustments, and I, actually, I'm quite used to like making it up as you go along. Is pretty much your modus operandi for well the rest of your life. So it's no big surprise.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Why change now, Mark? Why change now? So I can hear, I can hear a little bit of snuffling, a little bit of um, a little bit of sinus activity going on. What's happening? Mark? It is
0: it, well. It, the weather has been filthy, and in the way of a veterinary practitioner who comes into contact with, you know, we're not exactly stuck in like a yeah. Um, Preschool or anything like that—that that sort of cesspit of um, of, of viral culture. Um, but um, but you do you are forced to meet with uh, members of the general public whose health might not be absolutely perfect at any given moment, and um, you are stuck with them in a very small room for twenty minutes or so. Um, and I think. Uh, that process has provided me with a few um well i've got a cold brendan I- i've thought i might have got it from you to start with but um geez it's
1: a long distance um, <laughs> cold there yes um through the internet yes um well let's hope it doesn't develop into a man flu. It's getting close. I can tell you right (laughs) now, it's very, very
0: close. I am really suffering. It's almost (laughs) life-threatening.
1: Hang in there, Mark. I'm sure you'll get over it. I'm sure you'll get over it. Well, luckily enough, I haven't had any such um, event the last few days anyway, and um, things are plugging away okay at at work. Um, We had a few days of... um, have been a bit little bit quiet, but it's picked up again and then as usual, you know, sometimes it's a famine or flood, isn't it, Mark? And it'd be nice if things evened out. But that's the nature of the industry. And um yeah, a couple of interesting cases. Um a a shed in a dissectisis snake that um could end up being one of those horrible um um, slippery skin disease type snakes, Mark. where um, whether skin, it's almost like you completely peel the snake skin away. I'm hoping not, but um, I, I just have this. Little tingling in my spider sense is um, tingling, Mark, uh, my, and it may be that, but we'll time will tell with that. But some interesting cases and some nice clients, and
0: what more could you want? It is, it is just what we're, um, you know, we we are so gratified to have those people who come to us, and and it is. I was interested to hear that you. Um, Uh, You commented on the the waxing and waning nature of uh, veterinary practice. And it is something that, um, you know, as a practice owner and trying to maintain a, um, you know, a, a suitable staff and work culture, it is one of the hardest things in the world to, you know, it's always, as you said, feast or famine. You're whinging because it's too busy or whinging because it's not busy enough. There's no Goldilocks zone, Brendan.
1: No. Um well there probably is, but it's out there in the in the cosmos somewhere, isn't it? The Goldilocks planets. Um, but that's we'll talk about that at another time. So you're gonna talk about a moth. I, I, speaking of um, waxing and Wayne. Well,
0: <laughs> Indeed. Um, I'm gonna talk about um uh creatinotus gangus. This moth, um uh, it's the distribution um is reportedly uh, more tropical, but I've actually seen a few of these guys around our area here. They are reportedly the northern regions of Western Australia, Northern Territory and Queensland. Their range extends all across Southeast Asia, but we do in the summer see a few of them must get blown down from the, the... the the uh, breeze from Queensland and um, and we end up with a few of them around here. They're really outstanding uh, feature. Like when if you just see them, um, they are pretty spectacular. Black and white moth um, with a bright red body. Um, that sort of you know those uh, uh, those games where people. Uh, use those pens that do gradation in colour, the rainbow sort of appearance. It it sort of starts orange, it gets a little bit redder, and then it's bright red by the time it gets to the end of the abdomen. It's a beautiful-looking moth. But its outstanding feature is not its bright outside colour, Brendan. Um, It is the structures known as Coromata The coromata. Now, I'm sure most of our listeners know that um, to attract a female moth, a male moth has to disperse a pheromone, a chemical attractant. Um, And many moths uh, uh, have, you know, fairly um, ornate ways to increase the surface tension. Um, of the organs that distribute the pheromone. And the female moths have those lovely big antennae, um, uh, which they sense the pheromone in, uh, as, a, as the heady cocktail of chemicals wafts around, um, and they can head towards the, uh, the male with the best pheromone. Um, so the Coromata are feather duster sort of like-looking things. Um, and our wonderful moth... Creatonotus Gangus um, has the hugest, hugest uh, coromata amongst all the moths. Um, it or a hair ha- pencil? Ha- hair pencil. That's a that sort of takes a little bit of the
1: grandeur out of it, <laughs> Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> or a feather duster which is what corromata kar- means. Yes. Great.
0: Um, and so um, the interesting thing, there's two interesting things about this. Most of the time you never get to see these, um, but the researchers have developed a technique where they uh, inject a little stream of pressurised alcohol into the body of the preserved insect um, to evert the rather outstanding genitalia of, um, well, I suppose tech, is it genitalia? This paper calls it genitalia, but it's coromata. I don't know whether it technically is genitalia, but it's gigantic, Brendan. And and the researchers is. very cleverly come up with the um the for their little uh, device which inflates the coromata in preserved specimens. They have a fallow blaster just. Of course, they have to have a fellow (laughs) blaster. The other interesting thing about um, this moth is that the pheromone cocktail that they make – um, is actually a very slight chemical alteration to the pyrrolizidine alkaloids uh, that many plants produce to deter insects and animals from eating their leaves. Our wonderful, uh, the caterpillars of our wonderful moth seek those chemicals out and use them um, to uh, create the pheromone. And, and if they don't have enough pheromone, they actually don't develop a very large uh, coromata. So um, they do serve search out these chemicals and eat the plants that have them. Um, and, and probably my bet is, judging by their colour, the, the chemicals still create a bit of a... Um, they still uh, protect the, bur- the moth from being eaten because, crocky, you can see, these guys a mile off. Um, so that's my story, Brendan. A moth with a giant um, coromata and, uh, um, and poisonous pheromones.
1: And the blaster yes, um, I think there's a few um, human males at nightclubs that um, use a stream of pressurised alcohol to um, to inflate their genitalia, <laughs> Mark. Um, perhaps they're using a form of blaster as well to attract um, females. But yes, there is. A, we'll have a link to the blaster.
0: Now that you've made that work. joke, we have to have a link because people won't won't believe that story is true. <laughs>
1: at our website and um i was one of the times i was chuckling during your um comments there mark was watching the video for the first time of the fellow blaster and it is um it is spectacular i must admit it is spectacular well i don't think i'm going to be able to beat that story mark you've you've um You've um, started off with with a bang, so to speak. Um, Baby spiders. I'm going to talk about baby spiders. They're born with big eyes, Mark, just like puppies are born with big feet. And uh, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. It's going to be a very quick um, story here. And it's all about negative ontogenetic allometry, Mark, which is a spider's huge, eye, huge eyes are the similar size to a puppy's monstrous feet because they grow into them, and it has obvious advantages to have those big eyes when you are born as a small spider because you can see better, and you can go out go out there and hunt and survive and grow into a big spider. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about this one, but it's a quite a, a fun little story, this, and they studied Jumping spiders um, for this, and it was in the study, which was published in the Journal of Vision research. Mark, Um, and it was it basically it found that baby spiders have roughly the same number of photoreceptors in the eye as adults, Um, but the photoreceptors are smaller and they're shaped differently, so they can pack into a smaller spaces. Um, But looking at those small. Little jumping spiders, um, their eyes look a lot bigger because obviously their eyes are almost um, adult size when they're born. Oh, so, it's very yeah.
0: There we go. In that story, but I the um, researchers used a custom-made micro ophthalmoscope, similar to that used yes, by veterinary <laughs> veterinarians, um, to carefully look in the tiny eyes of the spiderlings.
1: Yes, they did, and um, I just love the the fact that it's a, a really good example of negative onto a genetic alometry mark. <laughs> that's um, that's why I like this story. So there you go. That's my first story, and that's it. What's your second one? <laughs> no, I haven't read it. Yet. Have you read it yet? <laughs> no. No, I'm going to wing go on to my second story. I reckon. How about?
0: Uh- uh, because it is about a topic that I um, I I've quite regularly, one of the funny things about um, being a veterinarian is that um, I get to uh, waffle on to clients about antibiotic resistance quite regularly. Um and obviously many people come in to work and go, Ah, oh, do you want uh you know, I've got this problem. Can you give me some antibiotics for my rabbit, for my uh reptile, for my dog or cat? Um and then I do my whole uh, you know, we've got to be a little bit careful with these drugs. They're not um they they can cause problems and overuse of them can cause serious problems. Um And uh, this article talking about uh, the role of some birds, particularly in this instance, the Australian silver gull, um, how they might play a role um, in the way that um, antimicrobial resistance might be spread around. So in this particular instance, they looked at... uh, uh, a particular type of Escherichia coli um, that was carried by Australian silver gulls, um, and what they found was that um, that these birds, looking at their stools, showed a widespread occurrence of um, cephalosporin resistance and fluoroquinolone resistant E. coli, um, and so the conclusion is that um, that the e coli clones um, that uh, that could be identified in the goals strongly re- um, resemble the pathogenic clones f- um, that uh, could be identified in some humans and this suggests the likelihood that the goals can act as um, stepping stones or sponges for indiscriminately accumulating and disseminating the resistance over vast distances and I think this is a really important story because I know that um, particularly for many human pathogens in um, the subcontinent, in India and, um, and in China, um, it's quite likely, you know, we worry about airplanes spreading those diseases. But the most likely thing is that um, various uh, um, migrating birds are going to be the ones that uh, carry those organisms and uh, spread antimicrobial resistance around the world,
1: Brendan. Yes, yes. And I would have thought an ecological sponge would have been a good thing, but not in this particular case, Mark. Or um, well, it's probably a bi- biomarker, isn't it, of um, bad things that we're doing? So it, it's we've spoken about it several times, haven't we? On our previous podcasts about um, antimicrobial resistance and the and the difficulties of, of explaining to clients that perhaps we should not be using antibiotics in that particular case in front of us, and. Gee, it's an uphill battle with some people, isn't it? Because all they came in for was, was, I want a handful of, um, tablets to, to shove down the the throat, or inject got to say, into my hand, um, I and, reckon uh, if they don't, I, you know, I am so old. I suppose that um, that I
0: can remember a time when it, you would be laughed at if you suggested um, holding off for a little while. But I, I have an increasing number of clients who are sympathetic to the whole concept of um, let's not immediately treat this with antibiotics until we know that it's caused by an infection. Um, yeah, I, I, I detect a little bit of a
1: groundswell of change, Brendan. Change. Good. You're very persuasive, Mark, so I'm sure that um, that has a lot to do with it. Well, my last news story is the problem with fake service dogs, uh, and it's an article from the US, and yeah, it's a little bit sad, this one, and they they define the different types of sort of um, service animals, or, or um, not just the dogs. They talk about service dogs, which are dogs that have been trained to perform specific tasks that help mitigate a handler's disability. Um, And they differentiate that from a therapy dog, which provides comfort to people, particularly in hospitals, nursing homes and schools. And they also differentiate that second type from the third type of animal, which is an emotional support animal or ESA, which are pets that provide a high level of comfort to the owner and don't have any training. And the only animal that can legally go into any public place the handler goes is an is a service dog um, in the USA, but they've been finding that people are wrought in the system, basically, isn't it? So there's fake service dogs where people are registering their animals as as uh, their dogs as fake service dogs, so they can manage to get them on public transport, including planes and other common public spaces, etc., cetera, and um, with little, um, you know, certificates saying, oh, look, it's a, it's a service dog, um, I'm, I should be allowed to do it. Um, because airlines, for example, are required to allow emotional support animals on board flights under the Air Carriers Access Act um, in the US, as long as owners have a note from a doctor or a licensed therapist, but the law is vague because it doesn't sort of define what um, human affliction requires in an emotional support person so people are brought in a system mark so they can take their little handbag dogs everywhere for their little puppuccinos, mark and um, I'm not happy in fact it's been a while but I'm a little bit I'm a little bit annoyed do you um,
0: think I'm this is a, a particularly this particular um, case US I was I've recently come across the concept of um, of uh, stolen valor um, So, that in America, apparently, there is a cohort of people who might present themselves as um, service people um, in the hope of, uh, you know, getting, I suppose, benefits or sympathy or uh, whatever, uh, for what it's worth, the. the, uh, a lot of the return soldiers don't seem to actually end up that much better off, but um, there is this whole uh, um, class of people who expose themselves as someone who's been in a particular place at a particular time, and um, so there's this um, stolen valor thing. And this, uh, um, the way they use these dogs, seems to be a little you know, have echoes of the same sort of thing. Um, do you reckon it would happen in Australia, Brendan?
1: Well, I know there's at least one case of somebody pretending to be a, a Vietnam veteran or and marching in the parades here in, in Australia on Australia Day or, or another service oh, wow. type day, and getting away with it and um they were completely made up and they uh, the rsl returned service and took them to court and they um i can't remember whether i just fined or they were were jailed for it because they um yeah they they pretended to be you know colonel colonel saunders um from from whatever and yeah so I'm, i'm sure it must happen in 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 other countries as well, but it's it's sad, isn't it? It is a little bit sad and actually reminds me of, of, of a slightly related thing that was happening um, with, with one of my clients. One of my clients who I saw today actually is, is a lovely lady and she um, provides support animals for um mentally and physically abused children um and she she um, uses primarily guinea pigs um some some rabbits and um she's a lovely lady and these are these are kids that have been through hell um you know a lot of them sexually abused and they get to you know decide which animals they they can hold when they're having therapy sessions and it seems to help them open up um and um I heard today that, her, that the funding um, for her thing has been cut. Um, so she's actually... And that was her basically, her only job was was helping these, you know, and, and I'm sure it wasn't a... It would have been a very poorly paid job anyway, um, as, as a lot of those service industry type um, um, support um, jobs are. So, yeah. Um, yes, so... It just made me think of that, but yeah, I'm a little bit angry about these people who um, are doing this sort of thing with their pretending to be, you know, having their service animals or, or emotional support animals. And yeah, that's my last. It's a bit of a downer, but that is my last news story, Mark. Um, and I think we'll leave it at that and jump. We're getting very punchy today, aren't we? We're going to jump. Into our main topic today, which is lumps in guinea pigs, or the condition that the layperson calls lumps, which is cervical lymphadenitis. I suppose is the most common term for it in guinea pigs. And um, the first question: No, to you, funnily Mark, enough, is,
0: do you we do I was um, when you suggested this as a topic, I thought I'm I'm pretty keen to um, have a listen to what you've got to say about this. And I did have a quick scan through our records, and um, and uh, we do get um, a number of lumps and bumps on guinea pigs, but um, not many of them end up being uh, definitively diagnosed as cervical lymphadenitis. Um, and I do know it's a quite across the world. It's a relatively common condition. So I, my bet is
1: you see it quite regularly. We see it very regularly, Mark. Um, there would not be a month that goes by that we don't see them, and sometimes um, we're seeing even more than one a week, Mark. So, yeah, very interesting. Um, so, yeah, so um, well, in that that case, I think I'll end up doing most of the talking for this one, and you can rest your little man flu um, and and recover a little bit while I, while I chat. Yeah. So, what is it? Well, it's it's lumps in the um, neck. And um, chin region of, of of guinea pigs, and it's usually reported by a client that they that they say, "Look, my my guinea pig's got a lump under its chin," um, and it may not necessarily uh, be apparently unwell. Um, some of them can get um, very sick and and potentially die from it, as we'll we'll talk about it um, as we go through the actual process of this condition. But yeah, it's often called lumps. um, And uh, classically, it's caused by a strep zoo epidemicus. um, But it can be several different types of bacteria, but that's classically the one that um, is implicated um, worldwide with the condition. And yeah, the signs are, yeah, it's got a lump. Um, sometimes it could, they can get massive. And, and I think I sent you some pictures of one fairly recently, didn't I? Um, and they can end up to be almost... I've had um, the biggest one I've seen is almost an orange size. mark. It's um, incredible. Um, usually unilateral, um, but we can certainly get um, bilateral um, signs as well with them. So... Yeah, differential diagnosis. So um, what sort of thing – well, do you want to chat about this, Mark? I know you don't see that many, but what sort of things could also be causing um, or show up? Well, we're always – probably as
0: I was looking through our cases, I was thinking that um, we're probably thinking about – uh, abscesses that might have arisen from uh, maybe teeth on occasions or uh, because of fights. Uh, we often find that guinea pigs, um, maybe even surreptitiously, the owners don't often know, but while the owners are away, they'll often uh, have a little bit of an argument, and um, they definitely have sharp teeth, I can tell you that much. Um they, I have read about um, sailor seals in guinea pigs. Um, it's one of the things that we always look out for, but I can't say that I've seen too many of those. Um, and um, we definitely see, like many of our herbivores, uh, um, otitis extend into that uh, um, subcutaneous space just below the ear. Uh, sometimes the Pie, the pie, uh, the, the empyema um, slips through the cartilage, uh, connect the cartilage support of the um, the ear, and enters the subcutaneous space. Um, and I, I, I also uh, have read that um, uh, guinea pigs are, uh, um, have been known to turn up with uh, various lymph cancers, and and obviously they will show up as enlarged lymph nodes as well.
1: And I think that's
0: another one that you don't see. I'm starting to feel like I'm not looking hard enough, Brendan. I think this is more a commentary on my (laughs) assiduousness as a guinea pig veterinarian rather than a true uh, sign of the prevalence of these diseases in Newcastle.
1: or perhaps we all meet, all need to move up to Newcastle because it's free from disease so um the fresh uh fresh ocean air is um doing you wonders up there mark so maybe that's what's happening yeah so we we do see a fair number of um lymphomas in in guinea pigs um especially the the old ones but in some young ones as well and they can show up as um, um enlarged lymph nodes so I suppose my my advice there is if you've only got one one um, swelling in in the neck region of a guinea pig which you are suspicious of it being a lymph node, then it's much more likely to be something like the the um classical um, lymphadenitis. But if we've got a generalised lymph node enlargement, a lymphadenopathy, um, then you need to start really thinking about the lymphoma. Um, So I'm always with these guinea pigs or any species when I have a a swelling around where I might expect a lymph node, I'm always trying to palpate the other lymph nodes in the animal. And in guinea pigs, that includes um, the the obvious spots like you would consider in in most species there. So it's a sort of preschools. Gapeular ones, and it's those ones at the back of the back of the legs there that those popliteal ones, um, and they they will potentially get enlarged with those those you know lymphoma ones as well. Not always; so you might only have one one lymph node um, increased in size, there, Mark. So, my workup for these, I so say, if we did get, and we'll talk about the potential causes of them, and I think there's a little bit of a little bit of debate about. Um, you know, what actually does cause it? Um, there's one obvious one that, that probably is implicated, I think, with the vast majority of cases, but I'm jumping ahead of myself. Um, so my workup for these market that are getting a really good history with them and, and trying to sort out whether or not that lump may have been there for longer than the client had, had realized. And, and that may be a possibility there because it's, it's not with the typical guinea pigona they're not going to be sort of palpating their ventral neck region every time they pick them up so who knows how long that lump or lumps have been there mark so um i think i always consider that perhaps it's been there a lot longer than the lump only came up today is what the client may be saying to me with it so so you have to sort of um really quiz them about um, how often do they handle their animals and um, even then think that maybe they have missed it in that case as well. Um, So physical examination as well, obviously. So we're we're palpating the whole animal, looking for other lumps or bumps. We're having a good listen um, for other disease processes and and palpating and listening to the chest there um, for them, Um, looking for signs of if perhaps it is developed from an otitis-type condition with them. Um, So has it got the classic signs we'd see with otitis media or interna if the lump has developed from there, and that's exactly the same sort of signs we would see with other species. So we're looking for head tilt. We're looking for nystagmus, those those um, conditions or, or clinical signs with them. Um, typically, my standard workup for them would then be admitting the animal into the clinic, um, ideally um, recommending um, general anaesthetic um, survey radiographs of, of the head and neck region um, for bloods, um, and ideally a, a culture what are you and sensitivity looking for on those radiographs um, the mass as well, Mark? Well, I'm just seeing if if so, let's say it's a solitary mass there, a solitary um, lump there. Oh, and, and the other the other comment relating to differentiating the, the those lumps um, between, especially the um, the lymphoma um, early on, is that the, the the classic lymphadenitis often feels like a, a pocket of pus, which it basically is. It's a lymph node that's been overwhelmed, and it's abscessed, um, and the lymphoma um, ones um, initially, anyway, it, um, they tend to be much firmer, so that the lymph nodes are reasonably intact. But they can eventually just sort of end up almost exploding and forming into big mushy, uh, mushy ball as well. So, um, but. Um, it may give you an indication towards one or the other. So on the radiographs, we're seeing if it's a a fully encapsulated um, abscess there um, and whether or not it does track down towards the mouth there. So um, that's where we get into the possible causes there and then it might be related. Related to to the two things that are commonly implicated, and, and one of them is dental disease, um, like we see in all our all our little herbivores, so tooth root abscesses, etc. And the other big one that's often um, implicated is uh, is um, trauma in the mouth, um, so a wound in the in the mouth somewhere from maybe a Unlucky and and a bit of um, sharp straw or hay um, penetrating the gum, and then the the bacteria um, entering the entering the circulation and or the lymphatics and drain into that lymph node um, and overwhelming the lymph node mark. So we're seeing whether there's any um, sign of it tracking down, and would you know I mean we might do a guinea pigogram as well, um, and um, seeing um, if there's any signs of any. Um, other, other masses and also um, looking at the chest as well because, um, as you know, Mark, uh, we always worry about um, chest problems in guinea pigs and if they ever have any respiratory um, infections, they can be quite difficult to deal with and um, um, I'd always like to get a bit of a chest shot of a guinea pig um, if if I get half a chance. So... What do we do then? So treatment. Well, the treatment of choice was well, all that you're of about these, to talk into about me, treatment Mark, because I was just about to into, ask. What do, you, what do you do to treat them? Yes, <laughs> my Absolute treatment medication. of choice is complete surgical removal with them. So um, you, you may be tempted, no. may be tempted to aspirate it or to excise and treat it like a. Cat fight abscess, I suppose, and uh, drain it. Um, but the hassle there is it ends up being a bit of a disaster, um, and we certainly don't put drains in in them because, as you can imagine, a guinea pig is guinea pigs are a lot messier, aren't they, than than rabbits, for instance. So they're all always rooting around in their hay and their their enclosure. And if we had a drain tube or we'd left that left that wound open, they're just going to get it full of gunge aren't they and 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 food and all sorts of stuff so so yeah the treatment of choice by far because we've got this we have this um lymph node that's completely sort of overwhelmed and it's just a pocket of pus um is to try and remove that pocket of pus mark and if everything goes to plan and um you've um had enough coffee or maybe not enough coffee or too much coffee um you mentioned so, that capsule
0: we're talking about there. That's capsule. the capsule and, um, of the lymph node, isn't it? Where we're literally excising the entire lymph node, and yes, and uh, nice. the the one or two of these that I've done just to add further weight to my. Um, my my inadequacy when it comes to um <laughs> uh, guinea pigs um, it is really easy to rupture you've got to be very careful with that um, lymph node capsule it looks tough and you think you can just swing it around and grab it with forceps and tease it out until you've got it all out but it is very easy to rupture and and then you can easily contaminate your whole surgical field and
1: uh, be- absolutely it's It's exactly Exactly. like you, Mark. It looks tough, but it's very soft on the inside. So yes, it's. I think it's a. It's. It's not rushing. You need to just take your time, take a deep breath, and um, treat it a bit like a game. You know, let's see if I can get this one out without it. Pop in, um, and and if you're not, if you're in a rush, or you're thinking let's quickly get this out, then it's almost invariably going to going to rupture because you're not being gentle enough and um, dissecting around it. Having said that, you will get ones that you will rupture there but yeah it's very satisfying if you do manage to get them out without rupturing if you do rupture it then still go ahead and try and remove the whole what's remaining of that capsule there and uh, and flush it copiously and my 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 thoughts are we still close that wound over because as I mentioned previously we don't want to leave it open there and um, they've still got a pretty good chance of complete resolution um, considering Um, um, depending on that we haven't got any assuming we haven't got underlying dental disease for instance with them yeah but it can be a bit of a challenge there mark it can be a little bit of a challenge and those some of those ones where you know they've the the whole side of that neck or both sides um, with some of them is obscured with these huge lymph nodes it's a little bit tricky because we're, we're, we're diving into a region that um, we might have things like a jugular or a carotid or a recurrent laryngeal nerve um, that's in there somewhere and you may may struggle to identify it, especially if you've and that, ruptured. And that's probably one of the
0: things um, in this surgery, the, the couple of them that I've done, when you first go in, it does look like you can... You know, distinguish those tissues relatively easily. And I do feel like I'm going um, particularly at the beginning, oh, that's clearly the blood vessels, the nerves I'm going to dissect around here. But after you've been playing with the tissues for only a very short period of time, and there's a little bit of bruising and drying out. Um, it seems that all those vascular and nervous structures end up looking the bloody same. And even more like a little bit of sinewy muscle. So um, I I, I take your point that once you, um, if if you're even just a little bit uh, vigorous and you start to bruise those tissues, it can be very difficult to pick between those very vital structures and some things that might not be as significant if you gently dissect them.
1: Yes, so... It needs to be something you've you, you've got your head switched on, and uh, you get in there, and um, you know, be 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 confident um, with with the fact that um, you should be able to get there with them. But but don't um, don't approach it too tentatively. It's that balance, isn't it, Mark, with these sorts of um, surgeries? So that you don't you want me. to be too gung ho, but you don't want to be too tentative um, because you. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. So, and then what do we do? Well, ideally, we do a culture and sensitivity, penned in the um, okay from the client, and if not, um, we would then be placing it on a course of um, antibiotics based on typically what um, will respond, um, considering the chances of the bugs that will likely be in there, and that ends up being either enrofloxacin. Well, in in my 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 cases, Mark, um, chloramphenicol. Coal seems to do the trick as well, and um, the trimethoprim sulphur drugs as well. Um, and obviously, we are we are providing um, adequate adequate analgesia as well, and that typically would be um, part of the pre and, and peri. Uh, operative um, um, treatment and also post-operatively in vast majority of cases it would be placed in the animal on meloxicam. um, Now, just tell me um, about one of the big things I always
0: worry about with my guinea pig cases is the... Is that whole process of dysbiosis, where the antibiotics uh, interfere with the normal gut flora and trigger a cascade of events, which leads to the demise of the animal? Um, So you're administering these antibiotics
1: per oz. Yes, yes, and yes, a good point, Mark. In that, I, you know, I generally, I usually say that guinea pigs are, are one of the most sensitive of these small mammals to antibiotics and you need to be very careful about what you choose and what dose rates you use in them and, and um, how long you give them for, um, so they are particularly sensitive. Sensitive, and yeah, we can get um, again classically. They talk about a, a clostridial overgrowth um, and a clostridial enterotoxemia. I think um, for these, but um, you know, having said that, I, I, I don't think it's that common in my. My hands, as long as you're selecting things, um, correctly and, and, and you're monitoring the animal, um, um, carefully. Um, so yeah, it is our oral, oral medications that we're using for that, for them. Um, and I'd be putting them on for a week or so. Um, and the good news is, I mean, the outlook for most of these, assuming that, um, that, um, that lymph node or that abscess didn't explode in your face and, and you still managed to, um, Flush it out fairly well, is, and you didn't didn't end up cutting that jugular and saying whoops. Um, they do remarkably well, Mark. Um, these animals, um, but I always think in the in these cases, and we're going to talk we will we will talk about the uh, potential thoughts as, as far as the causes of them, apart from the ones we've already spoken about. Um, I always consider this a little bit like a guinea pig where we get the clinical mange mark in that I think what is wrong with the immune system of this guinea pig because I have an inkling that that some of these are just they're just not quite right that there's something else sitting there in the background with them and that's why the lymph node of this particular animal became overwhelmed um, from something perhaps as simple as a as a wound inside I do like a theory well that's my theory Mark
0: you like a theory um, don't you I have had the same thought myself but I've got to say that in trying to um identify you know because obviously with guinea pigs um our wonderful friends uh from um the uh, small animal nutrition the oxbow people and um, they produce those uh, um, vitamins these supplements and um and I was always worried that uh that this condition might be a um an issue to do with um you know, um, a scurvy-like uh, situation, but um, that's probably not um, been borne out by the literature. At least, is that um your understanding, Brendan?
1: Absolutely, Mark. Um, I, I, I don't think there's any hard evidence saying um, that that's related to this particular condition, Mark, yeah. Um, those nutritional supplements um, like the gastrointestinal gastrointestinal supplement, those pre, prebiotic-type products. I do recommend to clients um, with guinea pigs and rabbits, if, if we have one of these animals that has a longer-term uh, treatment of antibiotics or has had some of that um, anything where it has a Dysbiosis for for more than a few days. For instance, the guinea pig that has not quite right um, feces that are not very well formed and a little bit soft or, or or clumped together. Then I start thinking, hey, do we need to try and reestablish the normal gut flora um, with that with that particular individual? So, yeah, um, but yeah, that's my theory with those ones, Mark. But yeah, as, as far as the causes, yeah, traditionally. Um, oral traumas spoken about uh, and that drainage to the local lymph node with the overwhelm um, lymph node with the bacteria underlying dental disease an obvious one there fight wounds you did mention there mark and yeah um, never never discount that if you've got more than one animal together whether it's humans or guinea pigs mark there's going to be fights isn't there uh, at um, some stage so I'd always put that on the list there and uh, those ones uh, I think the Giveaway for those ones are when you clip up that lump, thinking that it, it's a lymph node um, that's that's had um, been overwhelmed from from the um, bacteremia. Um, you see puncture ends Mark. Once you've clipped it up, and uh, and the puncture lines look very suspicious of the distance that you'd see with a, another guinea pig um, having a chomp. So um, I do see a few of those with them, Mark. Um, and the other ones are, yeah, just any sort of underlying, uh, you know, systemic disease type conditions with them. Um, I'd be considering it. And those otitis ones as well. I don't think there's any others that are that traditionally spoken of. I'd, I'd have to look No, uh, there the isn't. So I do, are I, there do, any I other would ones
0: just re-emphasise, like, like uh, thinking about the external parasites I do always think about um, their their um, level of health and not just stop at treating the the obvious problem the big lump under their neck just make sure that you do as a clinician work your way through the rest of their health um, their husbandry um, definitely uh, consider the vitamin C supplementation make sure that's not a additional factor um, and and um, and don't just stop with the uh, with the, um, the lesion you're looking at.
1: Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So I'd be very interested. Send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com. Not only, not only will you get a free entry into the Mega 100th episode prize pack, but you can mention how many of these you see a year and if you have any other theories about the cause of of lumps in guinea pigs. So we look forward to the uh, flood of the emails, Mark, um, into our inbox over the next week or so. Or Actually, this is episode 97, so you better hurry up because we will announce the winner shortly after the 100th episode. And with that, we will talk to you all next week.